Welcome to The Lead. I'm Nate Bramel. On today's episode of The Lead, we talk with one of Grady College's most distinguished alumna, Charlene Huntergold. In 1961, she became one of the first African-American students to enroll at the University of Georgia, along with Hamilton Holmes. After graduating, she reported for the New York Times, The New Yorker, and The News Report with Jim Leher. She also served as NPR's chief correspondent in Africa, as well as CNN's Johannesburg Bureau Chief and Correspondent. She has also won two Emmys and a Peabody Award during her career. In this episode, I talk with Charlene Huntergolt about her time at Grady College and her drive to become a journalist. I also talk to her about her experiences during her lifelong mission of giving voices to the voiceless. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast was created by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership as part of its Innovation Fellowship Program. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. We're joined here on The Lead right now with Charlene Hunter-Gold. Charlene, it is just such a privilege to be able to have you on today. Thank you so much. Well, I'm delighted to be here. So you're here to be the keynote speaker for the Hamilton Holmes Lecture, and just wanted to know a little bit more about that lecture tomorrow. Well, it's actually called the Holmes Hunter Lecture (laughs) because um, it was established in honor of Hamilton Holmes and me, the first two African-American students to come here. And there have been some great speakers over time. And I was just really honored and a bit surprised to... um, to even hear that they wanted me to do it. But I'm delighted because it challenged me to really sit down and think about what it is that young people should be hearing today, especially young people like you all because you're so on it. When you were thinking of what to say tomorrow, what, what was the gist of what you were trying to accomplish? Well, I think it's very important for young people today, particularly in these times when there's so much division in the country, so much toxicity in the air, to be challenged to process all of that in a way that is constructive. And I think that what is helpful for them is history, because we've had some rough times before and we've gotten over them. And so I go to history. Uh, In fact, I'm bringing several of the uh, members of the civil rights movement in Atlanta. It was called the Committee on Appeal for Human Rights. I'm bringing them down and asking them to stand. And I want them, the young people, to know their history. Many of them went to jail because they wanted to challenge the laws of segregation. And the best way to challenge was not only to, to pick it in front of stores that were segregated, but actually to be able to go to court so that a court of law could rule on the legitimacy of Jim Crow laws. So one of the people I'm bringing is a young woman named Carolyn Long Banks. And I wrote about her in my book, To the Mountaintop, where she talked about being in the jail with hardened prisoners, criminals, murderers, people like that, but people who, despite their criminality, were generous to them and appreciative of what they were trying to do. At the same time, 
they had to sleep on cold floors with no cover and but it was a sacrifice they were willing to make their theme was jail without bail and i just think that you know there was a recent study that showed that slavery for example is not being taught in in schools in this country for the most part and how important it is for people to understand that this was hard and to understand why some people who are heirs to that have some of the hard attitudes they have about racism today and so i want to i'm not bringing that particular thing up but i am bringing up the importance of knowing our history particularly our recent history so that our young people will know that in times of challenge a lot of us have walked and never got weary. That's a song like we shall overcome. <laughs> you and Hamilton Holmes were the first two UGA students to desegregate the school. Obviously, you were living in part of the biggest history that this school has seen in the last 50 years. It was longer than that. <laughs> it was 170 years. <laughs> and so or what were you thinking back then in that time as being a part of the history, but also knowing your history back then as a student? That's a two-part question, so I'm going to answer it in two parts. For one thing, Hamilton and I did not come here to make history, although we did. We came here to pursue our dreams. Hamilton wanted to be a doctor. He loved Morehouse College, where he had started during the process of the trial, of the, of the uh, uh, application uh, process. But Georgia had great equipment, great labs, much better than any of the African-American schools around, and Morehouse included. And that would have given him a superior start uh, on his path to becoming a doctor. He went on to become the first African-American student at Emory University, where he studied uh, to become an orthopedic surgeon. And I wanted to be a journalist. And so I think that despite the raucous, often nasty reception that we got when we came here, we were so focused on our goals that that was, in a way, I call it our armor. Our history told us that we could make it if we tried, that so many others going back generations had been challenged in worse ways than this and they made it and so I often talk about how our history is our armor because we didn't get distracted by the distractions we kept walking straight ahead in fact my mom was about five foot four I'm five eight Hemp's a little shorter than I am or maybe about the same height and Vernon Jordan, the lawyer, one of the lawyers on our case, was walking us through from the administration building down to the journalism school. And uh, we were walking so fast, Vernon and I, being tall, were taking long strides. And at a certain point, my mother said, hey, tall ones, remember, I'm not as tall as you are, so slow down. We weren't walking fast because we were frightened. We were walking fast because we wanted to get through this and get it over with. And, of course, halfway through, uh, Judge Boodle uh, stayed the order to desegregate. 
And we then went to um, the home of a black uh, couple here. And for about three hours, we waited until the case was argued that next, that, that afternoon. And they got the stay overturned. And the head, so we could continue to register. And the headline in the paper the next day was Tuttle Boots Boodle, because Judge Boodle had ordered us in. Then for some reason, I've never quite figured out, he granted the university the stay. And then Judge Elbert Tuttle overruled him. So the headline was Tuttle Boots Boodle. But I, I felt, I, I respected both of them and I appreciated the the work and the action that each of them took. Can you talk me through what it took to achieve your dreams and to put yourself in the position to be able to report for CNN and for the New York Times and what students today can do in order to be able to achieve those dreams? Well, let me say first, uh, take a step back and say how happy I am to see the different representations of people on the red and black. Uh, because when I went to work there, as a student, Tom Johnson, who was the editor, was very uh, receptive. But because Athens hadn't desegregated, I could never get an assignment because most of the things that the students would be covering, or many of the things, were in town. So ultimately, that's how I ended up going to Atlanta on the weekends. And again, this was during the civil rights movement there. Uh, and so the white newspapers weren't adequately covering the activities of the student demonstrators. The black newspaper, which was the oldest black daily in the country, had a lot of white advertisers that they didn't want to offend, so they weren't ac ac actively covering the students. So a professor at Clark College, Carl Holman, M. Carl Holman, and and Julian Bond, who was a student at uh, at, at Morehouse at the time, and also one of the activists who helped to draft this Committee on Appeal for Human Rights, um, worked on this paper, started this newspaper. So I would go, and initially I would sit in Carl Holman's basement where the paper was uh, prepared and wait. The students would demonstrate in the morning. This was before jail without bail. They would demonstrate in the morning, get arrested by midday, and get bailed out late in the day and then come straight to the basement to tell the stories, which I would then write. Eventually, I started getting assignments beyond just sitting in the basement, taking down what the students said and writing the stories. I got sent out on assignments. And one of them was to go to the Grady Hospital, Grady Memorial Hospital, and report on how uh, the predominantly black, because it was a city hospital, and most of the people who ended up there were gunshot victims and other people, victims of violence from poor communities. So I covered that, and that was kind of hairy, because once there was a guy lying on a, a, um, a cot, like, in the hall, okay. and they, they were overcrowded. It was a Saturday night in a lot of cases. And he was a gunshot victim. So I asked the intern what had happened. And he said, well, he was shot through the head and died almost instantly. And I said, oh, really? 
he said, yeah, let me show you. And he took out his uh, scalpel or whatever it was, and he just ran it right through this guy's head from one side to the other. Well, if that doesn't prepare you for the things that I eventually came to cover, like wars <laughs> and all kinds of demonstrations and dangerous situations, I don't know what will. But I had a strong will and a, and a determination, and I learned a lot. And it was the beginning, I think, of what I have just, my husband Ronald and I have just established here at the University of Georgia, which is a fund to uh, give grants to students who want to go anywhere in the world, including America, to give voice to the voiceless. I think that our world continues to need people who will get out there and find people who have needs but no voice. That is one of the greatest things about journalism is being able to provide that voice. I know you said in your time with the New Yorker, you would just explore and kind of look around for these people. What was the ways that you found successful and ways that students today can help find those voices that need to be heard? First of all, you have to inform yourself. And you can't inform yourself if you want to be a really good journalist by educating yourself in just one direction. That's not educating yourself. You have to look at a variety of sources. You have to get out there in the street. You have to read. You have to listen to the radio. You have to listen to local. And local is, is so important today because local news is dying. Local newspapers are not able to survive because they don't have the money. And so I think that especially figuring out how to do podcasts like this, where you where you can take up the slack that's that's being created by the disappearance of these local local outlets. Um, and and just getting out and listening to people, talking to people and not having a narrow vision and not being narrow-minded. One of the problems I find with journalism today, I, I, don't, I think there are a lot of good journalists doing great work, and a lot of them pr providing news that sometimes gets called by ugly names, but it's, it's honest, good reporting, and it comes from hard feet in the street, digging, developing sources and I've often told friends of mine uh, that I'm your friend until you've done something or said something that needs to be explored and then I will say to you okay I'm not your friend right now I'm a journalist so this is how I'm going to approach it and I've had to do that with friends there's nothing like getting your feet in the street and, and being in touch with people and finding people who otherwise would, who, who might have troubles, issues, things that need attention and just don't have a clue how to go about it. That's one of the things that journalists can do. Just to wrap up, I was curious if there are any particular instances where it really just was a huge change in the way that you whether reported or just tried to find a voice for the voiceless? I remember uh, going to a, one of the countries, I think it might have been Zambia. Um, I'm just trying to remember back. But there was, there was a pattern in practice of the elders, the men, 
to rape young girls or have sex with young girls just as they were about to begin their periods. And this was a ritual that was designed to welcome them, so to speak, into womanhood. Well, there was an NGO, a non-governmental organization, that saw the wrong in this. And the way they approached it was not to say that uh, this was morally wrong, which it was, but they took a pragmatic approach. And it was very creative. They educated them about HIV, AIDS, and said this is what happens when you get HIV and AIDS. You could die. And so this is why you shouldn't be doing this. And, I mean, to give voice to them enabled them to raise more money to do what they were doing. I was in Sudan uh, with a group of African leaders and um, Grasa Michelle, but also uh, President then Jimmy Carter and several uh, top uh, citizens of the world. And uh, the women, uh, we, we broke off. The men were over here talking to Jimmy Carter and uh, some other top people, um, who's the guy with the uh, airline um, from England? I'm having a moment here. But anyway, um, they were off talking to the men. And Grasa, Michelle, split away from them and were talking to the women. And at one point, the women were talking about the hardships that they had and how they had to go into the fields to, um, to search for food. And she said, well, with all these men, why, why, are, why are you all going into, the women going into the fields? Why aren't the men going into the fields? And one of the women said, just very matter-of-factly, well, if the men went into the fields, uh, they would be murdered. We would only be raped. And so I later did an interview with Grasa Michelle, and I said, what, what would you tell the world, people in America, for example? How can they help these women? She said, well, there may be doctors who might come over and volunteer their time, which would help. She said, but maybe just having people write and say we understand what's going on with you, some sympathy that would let them know that the world knew what was going on with them might help also. And so that's, there again is voice for the voiceless and, um, you know, things that have encouraged me to um, keep on keeping on doing what I'm doing. I do a series looking at uh, people who have come up with solutions to racism, which is our oldest, most enduring poison in the country. And that's another thing that even when people despair over this political landscape we're in today, I don't despair. I mean, I get frustrated but I'm optimistic because I know that there are people who are carrying on the good fight and doing the good work and helping to keep this country great. Thank you so much, especially just for your continued exploration into this topic. Just since you first became a student, you've never stopped trying to find this voice for the voiceless. And truly, are just such an inspiration for me and just so many students here. Thank you so much. Thank you. I look forward to your work in the future. Thank you for listening to The Lead. This episode was produced by Nate Bramel and Noel Lashley with the help of Keith Herndon, director of the Cox Institute at the University of Georgia. 
For more episodes, find us on Twitter at The Lead Podcast.